welcome to Be Curiously Of. Are you Asher playing cards and magic? So he's Lee Asher. He's a close-up magician, magic consultant, but most of all for us, a playing card fan and historian. That's right, and we interviewed him um, for this episode. He's actually worked on TV with some of the biggest names in magic. Uh, he's been a consultant on different TV shows, even invented some of his own magic tricks when he was only 15 years old. He's also the president of 52 Plus Joker, a massive playing card collector's club, and has spoken and written on playing card history. Mm-hmm. And he's a really nice guy. We had a great chat with him. And he just loves to share his passion of everything playing cards and magic. He joined us from a very snowy Toronto. So shall we get on with the interview? On with the interview. My name is Lee Asher. I am a second generation magician. Meaning my father is also, is also a magician. I'm also a playing card expert and historian and author. I am the president of the world's largest playing card collectors association. I'm the editor in chief of card culture magazine and probably a whole bunch of other things that I'm forgetting right now. That's so cool. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today. Um, yeah, my pleasure. So obviously you've got a really big love of magic and playing cards. So for you, where did it all begin? What was the, the very origin? Is there a specific person who, who got you into it? Oh yeah, definitely. My father, my father, my father was a young magician in his, I think he was probably about 12 or 13 when he first started. He lived in New York city. Uh, and during that time in New York, during that period, when he was a little boy, magic was everything, you know, Tannen's magic shop. It was hot. Like that was the place to be when, when my father was a child. And so he would go to Tannen's, he would go to Al Flosso's magic shop. Actually, he spent more time probably at Al Flosso's than at Tannen's. And that's where he learned he learned magic he learned from these great magicians in new york city and when he got older when he moved to to tennessee for university he decided that he wanted to be a doctor he wanted to be an, an optometrist but he still wanted to be able to perform magic on the weekends and for fun it was his love it was his love and then he graduated he met my mom they got married they moved to florida they eventually had me and then my sister and so when i was about seven years old is when it kind of clicked for me. You know, I my father was also a collector as well. He likes collecting magic books, magic comics, anything that kind of brings him back to his youth. And so, like I said, when I was about seven years old, I saw my father performing for a group of people and thought, oh, that's pretty cool. And then he showed me my first card trick. And it seems like I had a knack for it. I don't know. We'd have to go back in time for me to actually look at myself. But for some reason, I felt like, oh, I could be good at this. You know, this feels mm. comfortable in my hands. I understand this in a way that maybe I don't understand math or science in school or, you know, I mean, it's, it just clicked. And so from about age seven to about age 13, he taught me everything he knew. And that, and that includes uh, performance and you know, entertaining, not just the, the sleight of hand at end of magic. He, he's a big proponent in entertaining. You know, he loves to entertain an audience. He'd prefer to entertain you than fool you. That's mm -hmm. always kind of been his mantra. Now, he still wants to fool you, but he certainly wants you to smile and have a good time. And so he kind of, like I say, he kind of downloaded all of that into me till I was about 13 or 14. And then there was this emptiness for me where I didn't, I wanted more and he couldn't provide it because he himself gave me everything he knew. And we had a whole bunch of books, magic books and whatnot. I, I tried to read as many magic books as I could, but it's tough to read magic books when you're 13 years old, especially because magicians aren't authors. They don't really understand how to explain things in a, in a way that would 
make sense to a 13 year old. So I kind of set out on my own path to find sleight of hand that would work for me in, in situations that I needed it. And I've been doing that ever since, you know, I've been creating magic now. I'm, I'm almost 48 and uh, it's, it's been a while. It's been a while. But like I say, it's that's what really drives me with with sleight of hand and magic. My father loves the performance end of it. But for me, it's about the creation end of it. It's the time spent with myself solving problems and trying to, you know, see a, a, a larger concept in a smaller problem and trying to spot problems and solve problems. I mean, that's really kind of the crux of, of creating magic is noticing that ah, I didn't like it like that. What if I was a magician? How would I do it? And then I'd solve the problem that way. So to answer your question in a very talented way, my father, my father is my largest influence. He still is. He still performs magic. He is retired. He's not a doctor anymore, uh, but he still performs as much as he can. And he loves it. He loves it. It's his thing. He still collects as well. He's very passionate about his collecting. And uh, yeah, he, I think he's pretty proud too, that he was able to pass along this kind of skill to his son and that, that I cared, you know, cause there's, there could have been a chance. There's probably a better chance that I wouldn't have cared, but I did. And I still do. And so, uh, yeah, he's, he's kind of the guy that started it all for me and still inspires me to this day. Yeah, really cool. And uh, I think with this, I don't really do any magic myself, but obviously Anton is, which is why we're talking to you today. Um, so he's got into it in the last 18 months, probably. Yeah. yeah. And, um, so I've watched him and he will practice some of his tricks and me and he's done just some events for family so far. But there is some special quality about it. And I've I've always loved watching magic on TV and or um, on shows. And there is something so good when you are tricked by it. And then on you on the other side, you're, you're going to be performing the magic. And I know with Anton as well, it's, I, I don't know if magic tricks are a little bit lost, different for you now. I feel like I understand how it might work more than obviously before I learned some of the things in, in magic, which is sure. like a different side of magic, which is almost as nice as not knowing and being like, sure, wow. <laughs> sure. You know, the thing about knowing how things are done, that's one perspective, you know, like to understand how it works, cool. But to be able to make it work is even cooler. And, you know, learning sleight of hand so that you can perform magic for someone is definitely like the first step, the first level of, of what you want to attain as a magician. But then it gets into the nuances of the sleight of hand and the psychology behind you know, the direction or the misdirection that you're using to you know, entertain and fool your audience. And so it's very much like a golf game. You know, people play golf for the first time. Like, oh, this is cool. I need to get better at my swing. And they spend a lifetime trying to get better at their swing. And magic is very much the same way. You know, you do a couple, learn a couple of pieces of magic. You're like, oh, this is pretty cool. And then you spend a lifetime learning the intricacies of how to really make it work. And then it takes a lifetime. It takes hundreds and thousands of times practicing in front of audiences, failing miserably. You learn more <laughs> from failure than you do from success. Let me say that again. You learn more from failure than you do from success, especially in magic. And so you have to fail multiple times, many, 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 many times. You have to get back up on that horse every time until it gets better. And like I say, it's very much like golf in that sense. Like it is a lifetime of learning. And so to understand it is the first part. Now you got to get to the second part and the third part and the fifth part and the 10,000th part. And it's a lifetime journey. So if you like it now, there's probably a good chance that you'll continue to like it as you progress in the art of magic. And so, yeah, keep at it. Keep at it. And know that, like I say, just understanding it is a small part of it. 
you know, and, and even if your audiences know how it's done, they don't know how it's done because there are so many layers. There's so much psychology. There's so much, like I say, direction or misdirection happening that they, they might know one twentieth of it, you know, but then there's the rest of it that you do know that, like I say, spent, you've spent a lifetime trying to master and perfect. And it's one of these things where like you're saying you learn so much more from failure than you do from success. And I guess in magic, if you do fail, it's a real failure. It can be if the trick doesn't work because yeah. of the type of spectacle it is. It's, it's not like you can be, you can half fail. It's, it's all or everything. Yeah. You know, that's, it's interesting you say that because sometimes, especially as you advance more in magic, you learn how to kind of weave in and out of your failure so that your audience doesn't know how bad things have gone wrong. <laughs> they might sense it a little bit, depending on your body language and your face. Uh, but the more you fail, the better at it you get. And so by the time you, you're failing, your audience might not really know. And you're able to pull it off. You're able to maneuver and, and zig instead of zag in this you know, position where things went wrong. And so, like I say, that takes a lifetime, you know? it's. Like that, that's very much like jazz in a sense. You know, the song is going this way, but then we're going to take it this way and this way. And it's, it's, it's your show, you're the director. And so the more you've done it, the more you've practiced, the more you've performed, the more you've failed, the better your show is, especially as you get older, you know, because you've, you've learned from all of your mistakes. I hope you've learned from all of your mistakes. How would you advise a beginner to start magic? Just keep going and failure is part of it. Yeah, good question. Good question. So for beginners that are listening right now, my best advice is to naturally gravitate toward what you like. You know, when you get into magic, there's so many doors. There's so many doors that you can enter magic through. And really, like there's it's very much like collecting in a sense. Like you you cannot collect everything in the world. You cannot learn all of the magic in the world. So you have to start to become specific about what you want, what you like. Like I say, naturally gravitate toward what you like. And so if you watch a bunch of magic on television, you see like vanishing elephants makes you happy, then gravitate toward it, you know, and card tricks, nah, not so much. Okay, then don't, don't go toward card tricks, go toward vanishing elephants and stage <laughs> illusions and grand spectacle um, and start there. And that's probably a pretty expensive place to start because elephants aren't yeah. cheap <laughs> and housing elephants aren't cheap, but that's okay. That's a different kind of logistics that we can talk about later. But for now, like I say, if you're a beginner, just figure out what you like. And that's not too hard. Just watch a bunch of magic. And when you feel this feeling inside of, oh, that's really cool. That's where you should start and, you know, kind of gravitate toward that. And there are plenty of books in the library. That's a really great place to start is a library. If you don't have access to a library or it's too far away, let's say you live in a village and libraries in a major city. Okay, I get that. Then you have YouTube. You have, you know, digital libraries. You have all of these online sources where you can learn magic. Is it the best place to learn magic? Probably not. Could you learn magic and be satisfied and entertain people and have a great time? Absolutely. So, you know, again, like if you if you start to learn magic, let's say on YouTube and you want to now take it in a very serious way, then I would suggest you probably not learn anything else on YouTube and start moving into books or video or going to live conventions or lectures. And, you know what I mean? Like there's just the different layers, different hierarchies of how you'd want to ingest that information. So for beginners, again, go to the library, go on YouTube and start with what you like. And then eventually your tastes might change as you get older. You know, we mature as we get older. Some of us, not all of us. And <laughs> like my tastes for card collecting have changed. You know, when I first started collecting, I liked one specific thing. And now 
my tastes are completely different. And then I attribute that to maturity, you know, and not that I was, I was immature when I was younger. I, that's a different story, but in collecting or in magic, you know, it's, it's, we're new. We have to be new. You know, you have to start somewhere. So start where you are and go from there. And like I say, naturally gravitate toward what you like and use the library and YouTube to leverage and, and you're on your way. Okay. So I've made it as a performer and I'm on the stage. What are your tips for performing on stage or to okay. people? Don't mess up. <laughs> That's the first thing. No, 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 no. I'm being, I'm being joking. Um, so you're on the stage and you're performing and you're asking me what's, what's the best tip to continue performing? Is that your question? Um, it's... If you mess up, is it? It's like ah. it's like um, if you got confidence and keeping that, and like if you have to have the correct body language for the audience and things like that. Okay, I see. I understand. It's a good question. Um, well, if you're if you've made it to the stage, right, and you're a professional magician, there's a good chance you've probably messed up many times before you got to that stage. Many, many, many times. Now, here's I will tell you this: as a professional magician of many, many years, you can still mess up. Even though you've practiced for two decades, things still go wrong. Trust me. Uh, and it, here's the thing, like when you're a skiing, when you ski when you're a child, when you're younger and you fall, it doesn't hurt as much. But when you're older, there's there's more room to fall. There's there's a further to fall. And so it hurts more. And that's very much like that when you're a professional magician and something goes wrong and, and you can't get out of it. And it's just it fails. It hurts a lot, you know, a lot. It actually hurts more than when it you first started failing. Right. And, and that's and at least for me, that's because it doesn't happen often. So when it happens, it's kind of time to rethink things. Why did that happen? You know, is there a way that it couldn't have happened if I did it a different way? And, and you start rethinking your approach, rethinking all of the things that you're doing. Like, for instance, it was I think it was 2016, 2015, um, maybe 2014. I was performing in Atlanta and. I had to do two rooms. There was the small room and the big room. My father was actually there with his wife at the time, his, his newly wed wife. And so in the small room, things were great. I had a fabulous set. Like, man, it couldn't have gone any better. And then I went into the big room and I was in the back and I was waiting for my turn. There was two performers in front of me. And I don't know what I was thinking, but I was just, I started playing with my cards and just zoning out and, you know, being me. And I didn't, re I didn't reset my, my deck. For the next performance and so when i got up there it was my turn it nothing was going to work nothing and i didn't realize it till the first piece until the, like the first piece came into the end and now the, the reveal happens and here's your card and they shook their mm -hmm. head no and i'm like no and the problem with my set at that time was it was very much like a dominoes and if that went wrong everything behind it is going to fail and so in these kinds of situations, when that happens, you have to step back and go, okay, was it smart of me to domino effect every piece of magic in my act like that? The answer is no way. Don't do that again. <laughs> it's a bad idea. Or at least it's a bad idea the way that I had it set up. Okay. And so what it does, it forces, it forces us to re-examine things. It forces us to understand why that went wrong and the pain that you feel internally also forces you to make sure that that doesn't happen again. And you'll do anything in your power to make sure that doesn't happen. again. So ask me, is my set the same as it was in 2014 or 15 or 16 when I did it? Dan, you know the answer, right? No way. <laughs> no way. <laughs> no way. Changed it multiple times. Is the set that I have now foolproof? No, 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 no. The next 
problem that I incur, I will have to come back and, okay, we got to rethink this. we got to change this. And this is the typical life of a performer, right? It doesn't matter if you're a magician, a musician, into sports, any kind of performance, you have to constantly be reassessing your abilities and how things work. And for a couple of reasons, like you don't want to get bored, you know, like if everything worked perfectly and you did it for 25 years, you kind of get bored after a while. Like you, you need a little bit of variety going on. I don't want to fail miserably all the time for variety. Let me make that point clear. But this is the kind of things that help us grow. Like I said, I said earlier, like you learn more from failure than you do from success. So 25 years of success, you're not going to learn much. Fail twice and watch how much you learn. And so my best advice for when things are going wrong, because there's a lot of books that talk about what to do when things go wrong, and how you pivot to, to do this. And you do it. Those are all great. But no one really talks about like, the six milliseconds that you feel when things actually go wrong. And for me, when I was in Atlanta on that big stage and things went wrong and my heart starts pounding and the sweat starts dripping and the lights <laughs> start getting hotter. Oh man, you have to remember to breathe. That's, that's tip number one, take a big breath. Tip two, as you're breathing, remember you're not dying. It might feel like you're dying. It certainly might feel like this is the worst time of your life. But the truth is you're going to live through it and you're going to talk about it as soon as it's over. So that means you get to live to tell the tale for another day. And if you breathe and you keep that in mind that you're going to live, it's not as bad. doesn't make it better. It certainly doesn't lessen any of the pain. It just allows you to kind of shake it off and then move forward. And now moving forward, does that mean that you have, you know, all the tricks work? Nope. From in my case, nothing worked. And I had to do <laughs> change everything on the fly and go into impromptu routines that had no setups that didn't need any kind of special attention just pick a card let me find it force reveal force reveal so in the scheme of things failure is necessary at the same time breathe through it so it doesn't kill you it doesn't hurt you so bad that you don't want to get back up on the horse because that's that's the detriment of failure is that if it hurts too much then you don't want to do it again and if that's the case, then we've lost you. You know, you, you won't be in magic anymore. It's the same thing if you were in hockey and you got smacked on the ice and it hurts so bad. You're like, I don't ever want to play this game again. Well, then hockey's loss, right? That's not your loss. That's hockey's loss. So it's the same thing with magic. If, if beginners fail and don't get back on the horse, that's magic loss. So again, my best advice is to you is to breathe and to remember that you're not dying and that things will be okay and you will live to tell the tale. Was there a particularly difficult trick to learn or some lesson that took a long time to learn? Yeah, all of them. Like there's certainly there's sleight of hand that's easier to, to master than others. But the truth is they all take a lifetime to master. You can be good at something, but that doesn't mean you're great at it. You can be great at something. It doesn't mean you've mastered it. Right. And so there's all these different layers, very much like a golf game. You know, your swing takes a lifetime. Your sleight of hand and the mastery of the different kinds of sleight of hand take a lifetime. So right now, I am not, I would not consider myself the master of sleight of hand. I'm still learning. I'm still practicing. I don't practice as much as I used to because I, I have a, a family now. I, you know, I have a wife and a dog and like I have other like life responsibilities. So that kind of takes away from practice. Uh, when I was in university, I had a ton of time to practice. So, you know, I think that, it's just, it's one of those things, it's going to take you a while and to enjoy the journey of mastering this sleight of hand, it's going to take you 50 years. So a year two, you still better like it. You still better enjoy this process because if you don't, 
it's going to be a long 50 years. You're probably not going to even make it to the 50 years. Like you're going to move into another performance art or you're going to go somewhere. Magic will lose you, Zab. So go slow, find what you like, uh, be prepared to fail, prepare to get back up on that horse. Um, I mean, these are, these are pretty common things to tell people that have just started in basically any kind of, you know, performance mm -hmm. art or anything that new. Uh, but, but it's all true. It's all from the heart. It's all from uh, doing it and failing and, and wanting to be a master. I would love to, to be a master. So I would love to be able to pick up a deck of cards and be flawless. But that doesn't happen without a lifetime of practice. And, and it's very much, you know, like, it's certainly like riding a bike. Like, I don't think that if I touch a deck of cards for five years, I could probably come back to it and we could do some things. It'd be a little rusty. I would probably, you know, have to give me a few minutes. Let me see if I can get this to work. Um, but it it is like riding a bike, you know, it's got muscle memory, you'll, you'll remember how to do things. But in order for it to be perfect, I mean, really beautiful, it, that takes, like I say, a lot of practice, a lot. So enjoy the journey. Enjoy the journey is uh, my best advice on all of it. With Anton, I've seen, because I watched him do some cardistry and practices techniques, and I've definitely seen an improvement in the time he's been doing it. And as his hands have got a bit bigger as well, he's definitely found it easier. Um, sure. And like you're saying there, we're trying to get that perfect routine. It's also, say, because he watches quite a lot of YouTube videos of people doing cardistry, but then what you don't see there is all the edits and the, the failures and the things they've done. They're, they've just released a polished, perfect sure. output video. So you, That's right. Yeah, yeah, you don't see everything behind it. That's right. That's right. You know, we see this 30-second clip, and it looks gorgeous. But what we, you said, we don't know that they filmed it 100 times. That it's got, you know, we edited it with 17 different types of music to find the right one that hits the beat at the right moment. Yeah. Like it's yeah. different than if you're live and you're in front of an audience, you know. And so there's there's it's two different skills, basically. You know, mm -hmm. I, I'm certainly not going to downplay the skills that you need to produce a YouTube video. It's actually an incredible amount of skill that you need. I don't know if you watch Chris Ramsey, like you watch some of his videos. I mean, this guy is a movie director, you know, like the B-roll he shoots is phenomenal. And, and that's a skill on its own, right? And, and then the editing and then finding the music choice and the right thumbnail and like that's the amount of time and practice that that takes is the same amount of time and practice that it takes to master slide pan. Yeah. So yeah, know that, know that, that they are two different animals though, you know, performing for your camera and then editing is one thing and then performing for a live group of people is another. And, and then there's one is not better than the other. There is no, you know, there's no comparison really. It's they're different. And, and, and understanding that they're different is the important part, um, because if you decide that you're going to walk in front of a group and not say anything and then press play on your music and then do cardistry, it might work. Uh, but what you learn, certainly with close up magic, is that it's about engagement. It's about, you know, breaking that fourth wall and talking to your audience and getting to know your audience in a way that you might not be able to do with a video. Right. Like when you're filming a video, there's no one there. It's just you and your camera. When audience is there, they're going to talk to you and they're going to respond to you. And they're going to they're going to react to your magic or not or the jokes or not. And so these are these are all these things that um, that come with magic and learning magic. And Rick, here's something interesting to watch with Anton is mm -hmm. you'll learn you'll learn sleight of hand. You'll learn all this great stuff. But what you really learn are life skills. You learn yes. how to speak with people. You learn how to engage with people. You learn how to make something that is inherently boring, very interesting. And so if you master these skills, oh man, you've mastered a good part of life already. Forget the card tricks. And so I think one of the most important things that people can learn from magic is how to be just 
better humans, right? Because this is a gift. I have this gift. And if I sit here in front of you and I show it to you, you now get to experience this really special gift that not everyone in the world gets to see ever in, in a lifetime. Most people might not even see magic live in a lifetime. So in understanding that and performing and, and getting in front of a group, it's more than just the magic, right? It's, it's you being a human and them relating to you on a level of humanity. And so to be able to do that, like people, people like magic, but people like you more, right? There was a very famous magician that said, people, people aren't interested in your magic as much as they're interested in you. I mean, I've, I'm paraphrasing, but that was basically the gist of it. And he's hundred percent right. You know, like I think about all the magicians that I'm not really big fans of. I, I don't like them. Their magic's okay, but it's them I'm not really a fan of. And so their magic becomes secondary. But if I like you, well, your magic becomes primary. And so really it's about this, this human engagement, this human interaction. And that's really one of the, the real golden lessons to learn with magic or any performance art for that matter. Unless you're a mime, that's tough to <laughs> Yeah. But I'm sure that even mimes have great ways of engaging with their audience without having to speak. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's this, it's this intern, it's, it's the problem that we all want to solve. You know, is how do we get people to care more about what we do? And, and again, that comes with all these life skills that, that are embedded in performing magic and yeah, that are very hard to teach in books, very hard to learn on a YouTube clip. Um, those are the kinds of things, you know, that take a lifetime to master and you just have to go do it. You have to experience it and understand it and reflect on it every time and take your notes and then go back and do it again and over and over and over until you become very comfortable with it. I think with magic as well, because it's very intimate, particularly if you're doing close-up card magic, it is you and the crowd. And uh, maybe there's something in there because deception is part of it, the trick as well. So there, there's a trust going on there as well. And that that maybe open honesty in that um, communication that you're having. That's right. Not everyone likes to be fooled. You know, it's mm -hmm. a funny line to cross. You know, some people get very angry. Some people have to know how it's done and they won't rest until they have something to just calm their, their minds. And it's like, we're, we're kind of playing with fire sometimes, you know, we don't realize, we think, oh, let me show you a card trick. And then what you don't realize is some people like they, it bothers them in such a way that like they've, it changes their lives in, in a weird way. I mean, I don't think that they go and they have to be a magician. I don't think that that happens sometimes, but for the most part, like they have, like there's this, this internal conflict they have in their minds if i don't understand i thought i knew and i don't know and this and it makes me question my reality and it's like again we're kind of we're, we're playing with fire sometimes with that. <laughs> and so we have to be very careful we have to be very cautious we have to be cognizant that we're doing it and like that's why i say my father is more apt to entertain you than fool you and i bet it if we talk to him about it it's probably rooted in the idea that he wants everyone to be happy and if you come with just trying to fool everyone, not everyone would be happy, you know, because you're going to get the people that are, are bothered by it. My wife is a lovely example. She loves magic. She loves magic. She hates to be fooled. And so <laughs> it's this, this, this internal conflict she has. And then I see it on her face all the time when she gets fooled. And so, like I say, some people, they love it. It's great. Do it all day long. And other people, not so much. So we, we, have, to, we have to be cognizant. You know, we have to understand that we are, we're dealing with some things that are bigger than all of us. And so if we have some compassion and some empathy in approaching that, I think you'll be okay. So you said that you've done magic for a very long time, and I think you've created some tricks yourself as well, and some moves. I have, I have. 
Uh, what's the process of making your oh, own moves? That's a great question, Anton. <laughs> okay, this is, I mean, I'm going to give it to you in a very basic format, and you're going to kind of go, oh, is that it? And the answer is, yep, that's it. <laughs> that's it. But here's the difference between the amateur and the professional. The amateur just wants to create magic. Okay, great. Sounds amazing. The professional finds the problems and solves the problems. That's the difference. And so if you want to create magic, watch a piece of magic and think to yourself, where's the problem? Now, here's the, here's the hard part. What you think is a problem might not be a problem. So you really have to understand the inner workings of this, of whatever you're watching and to try to really comprehend is that a problem or is that just me picking on it? You know, like, but if you really legitimately see an issue, like, ah, if I had real magic powers, I wouldn't do that like that. It would look like this. Okay, well, then there it is. That's the solve mm. is that if that's the problem, now how do you make it so that it is the way you want it? And now you go about thinking, okay, well, if I did it this way, what if I did this and this? And it takes you down all these different roads. And sometimes you might not even go to the path that you or the end that you want to get to. It might take you so far left or so far right that you're in a completely different routine. And that's okay too. That happens. Actually happens more often than not. But at the end, it's really about spotting the problem and solving the problem. And that is the difference between the amateur and the professional and how they create magic. You mentioned that um, you are the you have like like collecting cards and you're the 52 and Joker. Yeah, the 52 yeah. and Joker. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. What makes a good playing card for you that makes it look good and feel nice? And do you have any, ah. have you made any decks yourself and designed some yourself? Yeah. So there's a couple questions that are embedded here. I think a good deck of cards has to feel good to me. And, and that's a subjective kind of answer, right? Because what feels good to me might not feel good to you or might not feel good to your dad or anyone else that's listening. So it's very subjective. So Lee, how do I learn what I like? Good question. Play with as many decks as you can from different parts of the world and start to realize, oh, this one feels thinner. This one feels thicker. Oh, this one feels silkier and smoother and, and start to figure out what you like. And ultimately, if you really start thinking about it, it's a, it's a, a journey of self-discovery, right? Like I can't tell you what you like. Your dad cannot tell you what you like. We can try to influence you of what we like, but the truth is only you know what you like. And the only way to find it is to do a little searching in your soul and to play with as many cards from around the world as possible. And once you kind of go, you know what? I like a deck of cards that's a little thicker. And I like a deck of cards that has some tactile you know, texture on it and kind of finish. And I like it. And you just start learning about what you like. Now, here's where it gets interesting, Anton. What you like from today until, let's say, a decade from now, these are arbitrary numbers, but from now until a decade might change. So today you might like this, but tomorrow you might like this. And then a day after you might like that. And here's what's beautiful is be flexible, be fluid, like everything, hate everything, but learn <laughs> as you're doing it. So ultimately when you decide, okay, now I have to make a choice. You have all of this empirical data to go fall back on to go like, you know what? I liked a thicker deck of cards that doesn't have any kind of tactile feel. So a smooth kind of varnish, if you will. And those are the kinds of cards that I like. And again, I can't give you that answer. Your dad cannot give you that answer. Only you can find that answer. So go find cards, go play with cards, see what you like, take notes, write it down. Uh, when it comes to making my own deck, I did. I printed a deck of cards in 2009 
long before, you know, like I, I guess Kickstarter started in 2009. So right around the same time as the Kickstarter craze started happening, mm-hmm. um, I self-funded. I didn't, I didn't have any um, like backers or whatnot. It was all privately funded, but I printed a deck of cards with Fournier, which is a Spanish manufacturer. They're actually, they make some of the finest playing cards in the world. They're owned or they were owned by United States playing card company. And now they're all owned by Cardamundi mm-hmm. and uh, Fournier, in my opinion, puts out some of the finest playing cards on this planet, and they are they are made differently. They are built, they manufactured with different raw materials that, let's say, like a United States playing card company bicycle deck. Um, and again, all of this is dictated by my tastes. So what I like about playing cards, you might not, and so you might see my cards and go, "Oh yeah, these are cool, but ah, I don't really like them. I can't. They're too thick for me." They don't have the texture that I like. And and that's totally fair. Those are fair statements. I never got mad at anyone for not liking the cards that I like. Right. And it's, it's and this vice versa. And so, yeah, my, like I said, my best advice is find what you like and then start playing with everyone's cards and see who, you know, who, who, whose tastes do you have that are similar? You know, like there's a handful of people in the industry that we all have similar tastes in playing cards. And so when they go, oh, I found this new deck, there's a good chance I'm going to like that deck because I know we like the same things. Now, there's tons of people in the industry that like things very different than I do. And so when they go, oh, this is the best deck in the world. OK, I'm going to have to feel it for my own and, you know, and judge that for myself. But like I say, there are other people and you'll find other people that have similar tastes that you do. And then it becomes really fun because now it's just not you looking for the best card. It's you and 10 others. And it's this group effort and journey and, and adventure and those are really fun you know those are really fun to learn about all the different cards made around the world and cards made in europe are different than cards that are made in the americas and cards that are printed in china are different than cards that are printed in sao paulo brazil and these and you know and so like you don't know about any of this until you play with it and so that is my best advice to you and anyone listening just go buy a bunch of different cards from around the world and see what you like and don't like Let's get on to some of the history of playing cards now. Do it. First question. Difficult question. Okay. Um, If you were trying to pinpoint, where would you say playing cards originated from? (laughs) Definitely a difficult question. (laughs) It's a tricky question. Um, You know, here's the thing about that. And probably with a lot of history, not just playing card history, but especially in playing card history. If you ask 10 different playing card historians where playing cards originated you probably get 10 different answers they might be similar on some level but for the most part like nobody really agrees on where they came from we have different kinds of theories you know there's the theory of cards came from egypt or at least the idea of cards like the cards that we're talking about that are from a millennium ago they did not look like the cards of today so you know, what, what, we're, what we're talking about is more of a historical analysis than an actual empirical analysis of this. Like cards, the cards we play with today didn't really start formulating or looking that way until about the 15th or 16th century. And so what I'm talking about is like 1100 BC. I think it was the, the Book of Thoth maybe started to point toward the tarot or cards, tarot-like cards, because they obviously didn't have the word tarot back then. And so... Some, some would say Egypt. Others would point to China. In about 800 or in about 900 AD, you have uh, the leaf game, I think is what it was called. And there was some recording of an emperor and his family playing 
the leaf game and the leaf game referred to as like leaves, pieces of leaves or pieces of paper. And again, it's, it's, if we went back in time in some like time traveling machine and we looked at that, those cards, if they were cards, they probably wouldn't even remotely resemble what we play with today. So um, those, like I said, those are kind of the origins or at least the discussion of the origins that we have within playing card world, trying to find magic origins are even harder. Um, but we'll get to that in a second. Playing cards. So think about if they started somewhere in Egypt, they started in China, then they started making their way across the world. And they did that through trading, right? Because you have these different countries that are now starting to trade with each other, like these, this global trade, the Silk Road, if you will, from China into, uh, into mainland Europe. And so you have all of these trade routes along the way, and all these people are starting to, you know, trade not only silks and spices and whatnot, but also the idea of games. Now, here's the thing. Cards, like anything and any kind of manuscript, I don't think they were printing books yet, but let's say around this period, these are really expensive, really, really expensive. The common person could not afford any of this. Only royalty, you know, only the top of the upper echelon of society could afford these things because they were handmade. Right. Like cards were hand cut, hand painted, hand assembled, hand colored. Like everything was done by hand. And, you know, obviously time is money. It still is. And so if it took you months to make this card, and I don't know, that's an arbitrary. I don't know how long cards took to make, but if it took a long time to make and all of these, you know, different um, like materials that made the cards were expensive to obtain and like, cards were really expensive. And so we have like the the first Full deck of cards that's in a museum. It's uh, in the in the clo the cloisters in New York, and it, this is the full the first full deck of cards that we know of, and I think only royalty played with them. Like there was no way a common person ever got to see these things, and so and they're beautiful and they're hand painted and like the artwork on them is amazing, and then, yeah, they, of course they're in a museum because they probably cost so much money back then, and so today they're priceless, right? And then you have like Mamluk playing cards. That's a very early card, I think from 13, 1400s. And, and they don't look anything like the cards that we play with today. They're very long, but they're beautifully designed and they're painted in gold. And, you know, and these, these were the, the initial ideas of where playing cards came from. But to get kind of to focus in on the things like that, what we like to play with now, like the cards that, that we play with, it's more, that's more like France. France really has a, a hold in, in playing card vill for us. All the court cards that we see even to this day are based on the French courts. Because um, you got to remember courts, like we think of hearts, diamonds, spades, clubs. But if you lived in Germany, they had acorns. They had different kinds of suits. Suits were regionalized back then. And it had to do with A, where you lived, B, the game you were playing. Like the, everything everything had a purpose and, and a reasoning behind why it was the way it was. Now, today, we just use hearts, clubs, spades, diamonds, because that's tradition. But back then, they were starting the tradition, right? It was, it was, it was new. And so, like I say, in about the 15th, 16th century in France, in Lyon, France, um, we, have, we have a pattern emerge. We have this court, these courts coming out, and it's based on French royalty. And, and each country, like in Spain, there were no queens, so there was no queens on playing cards for a while. And so if you if you examine cards and you examine the history during the times those cards were made, it, everything kind of lines up. It all makes sense. And so 
like I say, the cards that we play with today really start to formulate 15, 1600, but then the 17 and 1800s is where things really start to, the trajectory starts to really ramp up. And when cards start to become better, what I mean by that is when cards start to become manufacturing in a way that they can put, they can, they can pump out more cards at a cheaper price so that more people can afford it. And more people, the, the common person can afford a deck of cards. And now they can start playing these games. Then everything changes, right? You know, because before only royalty could play, but now everyone can play. And it got so crazy. I mean, the, the, the playing card craze was so crazy back then that they had to start passing laws that you couldn't play <laughs> cards during the weekday because people weren't going to work. And so on the weekends, okay, you could play, but you couldn't play for money. And, and you could only play after going to church. And like they had all these weird rules, right? Because people just, like, I'm not going to work today. I'm playing these, I'm playing cards. I'm gambling. I'm doing the, all these things that satellite with playing cards. And, and it was probably a really, really great time for playing cards back then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, there's this, there's this inter interesting trajectory of playing cards start getting better. Right, materials start getting better, cheaper. We're doing it in mass. The cards are less expensive, and because of that, we start to see more card magicians doing magic. Right, because now we can afford playing cards. Card magicians were always using cards, but in the 17 and 1800s, now they're it's affordable. It's like really affordable, and everybody plays cards, so it's a very common object to perform with. Right, it's very much like performing with coins, right, or a cup and a ball. Like these are very common objects now, and so. We see playing cards as they get better. We also see our magic become more refined, right? Our tools are getting better and so are we. And at a certain point, like it's like in the 1500s cards, if you think about paper, like if it doesn't have any kind of gloss finish or coating on it, it's like rubbing two pieces of paper together. Now imagine like trying to do manipulation in sleight of hand. It, it happened. We definitely have proof that that happened. And there were magicians that published their ideas back then that showed us that that kind of thing happened. But today, in 18, 1700, it was easier. It was just easier to perform with. It's still difficult, but not as difficult as it was in the 15, 1600s. So again, we're starting to see our magic that we were always doing double lifts in the 1500s, but now we're doing double lifts where the cards are really staying alive because they're designed to, right? They're, each one of these cards now is equal. They're the same size. They're the same thickness. Like it's all becoming mechanical, industrialized. And so the cards of today are way better than the cards of yesterday. And I would think that if we, you know, had a time machine, we went back in time and we showed the magicians of the 15th and 16th century, our cards from today, they'd be really jealous, like really jealous because the cards are absolutely better today. And the cards are getting better because of technology. If you think about it, like playing cards, are a pretty analog kind of object. You can't plug them into a wall. They don't, they don't get Wi-Fi. There's no electricity running through them. And so, you know, like how, how technologically inclined are they? And the answer is incredibly technologically inclined. They've got a thousand years of technology behind them and how they're made and how they're cut and how they're processed and packaged. And, you know, and in this, like I said, in the 17, 1800s, all the companies wanted to do was just make great playing cards so that you as the person using them would have a great experience. And all of that innovation came from improving the games or improving gameplay for players, you know? And so all of that innovation was driven by that. And now 
you know, what are we, what, what's happening now? Like, it's, it's kind of the same thing. We have all of these cardists, we have magicians, we have gamblers, we have all these playing card enthusiasts, and they're all doing things with cards that weren't really supposed to be doing with cards. Like, cardistry is a really great example. You know, when they make a deck of cards at the factory at the United States Playing Card Company, they don't think that these cards are going to be sprung from hand to hand by 10 feet or thrown in the air and flipped around. Like, they didn't, that's not how they designed these things. But this is, these are unbelievable pieces of, of, innovation happening and if the the manufacturers saw it and watched and understood all this empirical data they could go back and make cards even better which they are that's kind of what's happening right now and so the technologies behind making a deck of cards it's immense like it's most people have no idea the amount of technology that's gone into it and within the last 200 years is where we really see that technology ramp up right where steam is introduced to machinery in the second industrial revolution and so now steam driven machines or cranking out playing cards by the minute by the second actually and we you know what took days to make one now takes seconds to make a thousand and just the you know the, the sheer volume of things increases in such a way that we see our magic you know it's like our magic and, and cards parallel each other you know if if cards are getting better well magic's getting better too if yeah. cards ever go down there's probably a good chance magic will go down too you know, they're, they're very, they're very correlated in a way. And, and magicians don't realize that, you know, we just think, oh yeah, I know cards and we do magic. No, no, wait a minute. If we examine magic from all the way back then, we'll see, you know, okay, they had to work really hard to pull some of that stuff off. Not as hard as we have to do it today. You know, like today we have it much easier because the cards are better and they're designed to be better. They're designed to slip and slide and glide and do all these fun stuff because it helps when you play cards. Right? It helps when you spread cards or when you shuffle cards. And, and that's all the manufacturers tried to do was improve that. And so, yeah, Matt could talk history and, and playing cards and magic all day long. Uh, and I will definitely tangent. You know, I don't even remember the original question you asked me because I'm too busy <laughs> loving playing cards. Um, it's but great yeah, to it, see. It's, it's a very special object. You got to think about all of the toys that your father played with and his father played with and his grandfather and great grandfather. And like, we've been playing with cards for a millennium. And so it's really cool to think about like, you know, your great, great grandfather was not playing with a Nintendo. Absolutely not. <laughs> and, and there's reason, right? Cause the, electro the electronics weren't around. But he was playing with playing cards and the same cards you're playing the same suits, same number of cards, same values, all the same, you know? And so that's cool. That's really cool. And you can't, you probably think about it. If you try really hard, you think of a couple of other things in your house that are like that. But for the most part, probably on one hand, the amount of analog objects in your home that your great, 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 great grandparents played with that you play with, you know? And, and so that's, that's an interesting lineage that most people don't really think about. Or they take for granted. Um, do you have any other questions on the history of playing cards you'd like answered? I was just going to mention uh, a couple of weeks ago, my granddad got out some um, old playing cards that he found, mm -hmm. and he was showing how they were, how he remembers getting them. Um, so that shows exactly what you said there. Absolutely. Do you remember the size of them? Were they bridge size or were they poker size? There were two. So there's a bridge size deck. Yeah, and the reason why he probably has a bridge size deck is because the game of bridge was really popular during his time. It's not as popular today. Like there are still people that play bridge. There's still bridge clubs. There's still people that get together and, and do it up. 
But for the most part, poker has taken over. Um, and so you've got to think about that, right? Poker, the size of the card is different than a bridge size card. And do you know why? Um, not really. <laughs> okay, that's okay. That's okay. I'm happy to share the, the answer with you. So I historians believe, right? I, I want to preface by saying historians believe the reason why a bridge size deck is smaller than a poker size deck is because you hold more cards in your hand when you play bridge, right? You, you hold 12, 13 cards in your hand. Whereas in poker, you only hold five, seven at the most. And so you, you need smaller, narrower cards if you're going to hold more of them versus poker where you don't need to have that many cards. And so they don't have to be that narrow. There was a time where they were saying, well, bridge was predominantly played by women. And so the cards were smaller because of their hands. I think that's nonsense. I think that's nonsense. There were plenty of people that weren't women that were playing bridge. So that's, I don't think that's the case. I think it has more to do with you just hold more cards in your hand when you play the game of bridge than you do with the game of poker. And so again, that's the manufacturer looking at the games and going, how do we make this easier for everyone? Because if you had to hold 13 cards, poker size cards in your hand, that's a lot, you know, and you got to kind of go through and see which ones you have versus if they were all narrow, it's, it's just as wide as if you had five cards. And so that that is an innovation based on the gameplay. And, and it's like that with a lot of things, you know, certainly within the last thousand years of playing cards, it's all been on how to improve gameplay. Within the last couple of years, maybe let's say a decade, now magicians and cardists, we are now kind of in an interesting situation where we, we before they, the manufacturers never cared about us. I want to say that. The manufacturers never paid enough attention to us to see what they could do to help magic or help cardistry. But now they are. Now they understand that all of this empirical data that the cardists and the magicians are kind of creating and understanding will make cards better. And so, and instead of trying to improve a game, now they're going to try to help improve cardistry. They're going to try to help improve card magic and sleight of hand. And that's super exciting. That's like, whoa, I feel like we've made it. You know, like before we were in the back in the nosebleed seats. Now we got a front row and, and that's pretty special. That's pretty special. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's the, the cards that you have from your grandfather, are they British made? You know, if they're British made? Well, we've got Carter Mundy, which I think is Belgian. Yep. That's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Oh, there's okay. Super cool. Let me show you something. Hold on. Hold it back up. Hold it back up. <laughs> Do you see those two little slits in the back of the box right there? Oh, yeah. You know what that's for? Uh, not really. <laughs> I did read okay, that. I've forgotten. What we're talking about are these two little slits right here on the back of the box. And what it's for is if they don't have those slits, when you open up the box, you kind of have to dump the cards out so the cards will come out. But what this slit does is if you take it, you push the slit in so it pops like that. You see that? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Now you put your finger in, you can grab all the deck and pull them out. Yeah. And so you don't have, you so don't have to like shake them out or anything. And so this is a very cool invention by a man named Samuel Murray. And he was, he used to work for United States Playing Card Company. Actually, before United States Playing Card Company, they were called Russell Morgan. And so he actually worked for Russell Morgan and he was a draftsman. He was a, a machinist. So he built a lot of the machines that they used to, to print playing cards. And one of his ideas was this recess in the box so that you could pull cards out. He was a genius. Like he was a real genius. And we credit him. He actually has one of the most important things that he's done for all of magic and cardistry and playing cardville. He did something for us that 
we, we, we can never forget his name. He was the one before him playing cards were cut by hand, you know, like they, they had either scissors or machines that like, uh, uh, you know, the, the, okay, the machines see. you see at school. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. Like, yeah. And so, um, that's how they used to cut cards. But if you think about it, not all the cards were even. And so what Samuel Murray did was Samuel Murray created a machine with steam. So it was like steam operated and it would take a, a sheet of paper. So that you print cards on a sheet and then it would punch every card out individually. Boop, 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 boop. So every single card was exactly the same size. And that absolutely changed how we manufacture playing cards. To this day, we do not cut cards anymore. They are all punched out everywhere in the world, punches cards. Unless they're like, you know, you're doing very small run antique kind of things. But in, in mass production of playing cards, it's a punch machine. And it was this guy. And this guy figured it out. And he's the same one, like I say, that created the, the recess on the tuck box. He created a lot of stuff. He was actually very, very, very smart. And he was a mechanical genius and he was a marketing genius. And he eventually left Russell Morgan and opened up his own company and basically kind of positioned himself to fight United States or to, to fight Russell Morgan, you know, and Russell Morgan, they were the, they were the biggest, you know, manufacturers of playing cards or becoming the biggest manufacturer of playing cards at the time in America. And so what they did was they just started buying up all their competition. And so they basically bought Samuel Murray out. And as the story goes, they gave him a million dollars in stock and a million dollars in stock in 1894. That's a lot. It's a lot. And so he he actually came back to work for, for them. And when Russell Morgan bought Samuel Murray's company, it was called National Card Company, by the way. When he bought National, when they bought National and Perfection and all these different companies, they kind of amalgamated them underneath their roof and they changed their name to the United States Playing Card Company. And that's how the United States Playing Card Company comes to be. And so now they own all of this innovation. They own all these machines. They own all of it. And that's when we see a golden age for playing cards, right? Because what happens when the the world's largest playing card manufacturer buys up all the other manufacturers, buys up all these factories, these machines, all this proprietary printing knowledge, and they start making the greatest playing cards ever. And they do it out of their factory in Cincinnati, Ohio. They break ground in 1899. The factory starts churning out cards in 1901. And for the next hundred years, it's like they make the best playing the cards that everyone in the world wants, and especially magicians and cardists, performers and whatnot. And they still do. You know, Bicycle, United States Playcard Company cards are the gold standard for playing cards, for performing with or doing cardistry or all that. There are other companies that have kind of come into the fold in the last decade or so, but still the largest market share is the United States Playcard Company. And, and they have held it now for almost, you know, 140 plus years. Um, so that's that's a testament to what they're what they're doing and how well they're doing it. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's uh, playing card history, man. And what I really <laughs> like about playing card history is it informs me of of world history. Yes. You know, like I can I understand, you know, if this happened in playing cards on this date, well, what's happening in the world around it? You know, because playing cards did not happen in a vacuum, and so things are happening concurrently all around, and so. To learn that you know we're in a civil war the united states is in a civil war you've got the north fighting the south and during this period a guy decides hey i like playing cards i think it's hard to play cards though because there's no indices on any of these things so i'm going to make these little emblems and i'm going to put them in the corners and now i've made cards easier to play with and this happens yeah. during the civil war 
or right around like it's 1864 so civil war starts about 1865 and so like during wartime people are creating and innovating because when we're not firing and shooting and killing people what are we doing we're playing cards right it's downtime. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you know like these are like it helps to inform the, at least for me it helps to inform history for me and so if i can understand playing cards and their history and where they are about in the world i can kind of relate the rest of oral history to it and and it's super fascinating you know because playing cards have documented history forever like every major event in the world has probably been documented somehow some way on a deck of cards whether it be the back or the face or the box or whatever um so it it, it really helps to inform me as to where we are in, in the scheme of things um and i do think i do think for magic specifically for magic and for playing cards cardistry i think we are now in another golden age you know we're in a position where we have the world's largest playing card manufacturer buying up all these other companies and putting all of their proprietary print knowledge under their roof so they can make the best playing cards in the world you've heard the story before right it's the same thing and that's what cardamundi is doing and that's what they're doing right now like we saw that happen three or four years ago and they bought out united states playing card company and fournier and all these major companies and so now their goal is to just make the best playing cards in the world and and for us to play with them and to understand, hey, are these the best? How If they're not, how can we make them the best? How can we explain to the manufacturer this is what we want? And so it's a really special time for us because, like I say before, we were we were kind of considered the game play. You know, we we're part of people who just play games. And now we're, we're our own segment, you know, and so that's interesting. That means they'll take us more serious. They'll cater to us in interesting ways. And so, yeah, like it's 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 our role now to play with these cards and express our thoughts and feelings and how to make them better. And it's up to the manufacturers to listen and to keep up with us. And uh, <laughs> it's it's a wonderful synergy. So you told us a lot about the playing card history. Um, can you is there a favorite story or anecdote from that history? Oh, there's a lot. There's a lot. <laughs> I, I'll tell you one that most people don't know. And, and I found this in my research. So the original owners of United States Playing Card Company were Russell and Morgan. And, and there were actually a couple of others. They used to print posters and like labels and show cards. Before United States, or before Russell Morgan made cards, they would make these labels. They're really beautiful. Oh, wow. Well, that's cool. That's lovely. Yeah, they're really, really beautiful. And these are from about 1870, 18, they started in the 1860s and the 1870s is when they were doing all this stuff. And then 1881 is when Russell Morgan decides, hey, we should be printing playing cards. And so Russell and Morgan, there's a guy, his name is August Russ, excuse me, August, what's his middle name? Orchard, Octavius, no, Octavius. August Octavius Russell, A.O. Russell, and John Morgan. Those were their names, Russell Morgan. And neither of them were really kind of, you know, like playing card fanatics. I mean, they like playing cards for sure, but they were, they were businessmen. You know, they were into the printing business and the stationary business. John Morgan, this is the story I want to tell you. And most people don't know John Morgan. You got to remember, he owns a major playing card company in, in Cincinnati, Ohio. John Morgan is also on the police force of the local police force. And I think he is, don't quote me, but I think he's, I don't think he's a commissioner, but he's he's got some kind of stature. He's he's up there. And what he would do is he would raid people's illegal gambling outfits <laughs> if they weren't using Russell Morgan playing cards. So oh, wow. he basically 
he was putting in the fix for his company everywhere. And if you were caught, you know, playing cards, which you weren't allowed to do, gambling, without using Russell Morgan cards, he was, he was busting up your game. And you're probably going to jail. And so I think that's a pretty great story that no that people don't realize. Job. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, that's like a real mafioso kind of move right there. Like he, it was, yeah, times were different back then. Times were definitely yeah. different back then. The CEO of Carter Money uh, is not forcing anyone to use their money. It does not work that way. Um, though I think that the, the CEO would probably laugh at that story. He'd probably find that pretty amusing. I don't know if he knows it or not. Uh, but yeah, I, like, I think that's a fun tidbit that most people don't know about. Um, I also think here's an interesting tidbit. Everyone, everyone thinks of playing cards in America. We think, oh, it must have been from the colonies. You know, it must have come over from England or from the Dutch. And and sure, playing cards did come over that way. But the truth is that playing cards were in the new world long before. They came with the Spanish, when the Spanish invaded Mexico. And once, I think it was Cortez, took over Mexico City, they basically, not flew in, but they, they boated in a, a playing card press and someone to run it. And they were the <laughs> official playing card printers from Seville, Spain to Mexico City. And apparently they were so good. Like the playing cards of Mexico were the greatest cards at the time. Like the cards were, mwah. I don't know. I've never played with any of them. I've seen them, but I've never played with them. Mm-hmm. Apparently like the word on the street was that they were the best. And, uh, and then we, like I said, we see playing cards come over once the British and the Dutch start colonizing the East coast of the United States. And then we have the colonies. And here's another cool tidbit. Uh, who was the first person to print a card trick in the colonies? That's a trick um, question. No one. I'll give you. I'll give you a hint. His brother owned a paper company, or he owned like a, a paper mill. So they were making pulp. And what he did was he would also he would print his own newspaper. Very famous for printing his own newspaper, and he was a big fan of electricity. That should tip it right there. Oh no. <laughs> Well, the names face, have left my head. Space is on the hundred dollar bill. <laughs> Jefferson? No, he's on a twenty. No. no, 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 no. So it's uh, Benjamin Franklin. Franklin, Franklin. Yes, thank you. I feel so bad forgetting the names. It's Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin. <laughs> I think he went to Spain, and is either he went to Spain or his friend went to Spain and saw a magician, and so he came back to the states. And or maybe he was in London and his friend went to Spain and went to London and he told him about a magician. And then Franklin came back to the States and invented a card trick and then uh, printed it and then put it in his newspaper to sell in his newspaper. And so that's a pretty neat kind of tidbit that most people don't realize or know about. Um, do you know that you invoke Shakespeare when you say the word deck? He My actually God. invented the word deck. Now, the word pack was around, and obviously the word cards were around, um, but he uh, he created the word deck. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. He invented the word pack. The pack? No, no, it's deck. It is deck. Yeah, to deck your kings, I think, is the first, the first time he uses it in one of his plays. He used it twice in two of his plays. I have to look it up. I'm going by memory now, so I have a very <laughs> bad memory. Um, but yeah, Shakespeare was the one that invented the term, uh, along with many other terms. Like he was, you know, he yes. was the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he invented like 2,000 words or something, I'm pretty sure. Or maybe something. a bit less, a bit more. Something. something. Like and deck is one of them. Deck is one mm-hmm. of them. And so, yeah, these are these are fun tidbits. These are fun tidbits throughout history. And uh, that makes you go, wait a minute, they were playing cards during Shakespeare's time? And you're like, yes, they were. Yes, they were. 
they were not playing cards in ancient Greece. That was not happening. Ancient Roman <laughs> Greece did not have playing cards. They might have had dice and other games of sorts, but they did yeah. not have playing yeah. cards. Because um, we don't know. We don't hear any of the Stoics talk about playing cards. We don't hear any of the, you know, the great literature that comes from that period. No one talks about playing cards. So it wasn't around during that period. But we do think, like I say, some people think it was in Egypt. And, and Egypt's not too far. And so, mm. and then China, which is also not too far in the scheme of things. And, and then it kind of makes its way down through the Middle East. And then it moves into India. And it kind of goes all, it, it moves all around. And so playing cards, the world has helped shape playing cards. And, it, and it's kind of very, you know, it's, it's, it makes sense that Cardamundi is Cardamundi because they are the cards of the world. And cards are of the world. You know, everyone left, every country left their mark. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really neat to see that. It's like, you think about all the, the, the objects in the world, like, did every country touch every object and, and influence it in some way? And maybe, but maybe not but playing cards for sure. Yeah. I love that idea of the history there. You don't, well, a pack of cards could seem really ordinary and mundane, but when you look deeper into it, you realize, yeah, there's this long history here. It's something that's touched yeah. so many people and, um, even like the manufacturing, that's, your social history there, your economic history, your technical history. There's there's so there. many avenues. It's all there. How did how did kings and queens teach their mm. you know their their children about the lands that they ruled on cards, right? They had ge they, they had geography cards, geographic cards, and so they didn't have little indices in the corners, and you couldn't play games like that as such. But they they would play certain games to teach them when they grow older, these are the kingdoms that they will be ruling. And these, this is geography. And, and so, yeah, cards, cards have been utilized all different types of ways to, to help humanity move forward. How is a modern playing card made? Do you know? Yeah. So there's a lot of technology that goes into it. And I'm going to give you a real generalized way that they're manufactured obviously different manufacturers have different kinds of proprietary processes that they use but for the most part it's um so it's two different pieces of pasteboard glued together to make one sheet so when you hold a deck of cards most people don't realize this but you're actually holding two pieces of paper glued together okay and that's why some magicians can actually split a card so they can peel the cards and if you've done that before, you might have noticed that the top peels off and the bottom peels off, but then there's this kind of black center. And most people think that's the third part of the card, a third piece of paper, but that's not true. That's actually the glue that's dried, right? So with the United States Playing Card Company, for example, they have what they call casino quality playing cards. And what that really means is that they use a darker black glue so that you cannot see through the card when you hold it up to the light. So if you're playing <laughs> yeah. in a casino, no one can see through the back of your cards to see your cards, okay? And that's accomplished by taking two pieces of pasteboard and then using some kind of opaque glue that dries dark black and then press together. And, and so that's how they make cards. And cards are printed in sheets. So a lot of the decks that you see that are custom decks, for instance, that have really cool foiling and fun and they're made from these, you know, these kind of magic companies or these cardistry companies. They're probably, probably, I'm, I'm going to preface, they're probably printed on what's called the sheet fed press, which means they have a piece of paper, just like your home printer. And you feed a piece of paper in and it prints it and the paper comes out the other end and that's it. 
and that's called the sheet fed press. And most of the short run decks are run on those kinds of presses. But if you're printing, let's say like a bicycle deck of cards where they're going to print 20,000 of these guys in one clip, then they have what's called the, the web press. And so a web is a big roll of paper that they have to use like a, some kind of lift to lift because it's like two tons. It's huge, huge, like taller than three people stacked up, huge roll of paper. And they put it into the press. And it's very much like if you've ever seen newspapers being printed where it's just one long sheet and it's just running. And the whole joke is like, stop the presses. And the reason why they'd have to scream that, and it's so difficult to do that is because you have to stop it in mid printing because you can't, you can't cut the sheet. Right? It's not like one sheet that comes out the other end. It is the entire roll that's happening. And so the web press has all these logistical things that they, you know it runs through, it cures the card, it cuts the card, it packages the card. It's like this is a multi, multi-million dollar press that they use at United States Plank or a Heidelberg press. It's mm-hmm. very, very technologically inclined. And so that's how cards are kind of made is on these, these larger presses. And then once the cards come out of the machine and the sheet fed is a little different than the web because the web, you know, all the coding goes on at the same time and, and it's cured through the tunnel. It's a whole process. But in the sheet fed, you've got this, this sheet that comes out. Now they put it into the slicer. So the sheet now gets sliced into slices of like six or seven cards across. And then those slices get put into the punch machine. And then poof, 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 they get punched out individually. I should back up. I forgot one step before <laughs> any of the cards get cut. there's texture added to the card, right? And so most people confuse this. So people think that the plastic coating is the texture and that's not the case. The plastic coating is the glaze. The the finish, what we refer to as a finish is actually the patterns that are embossed into the paper. And those, those patterns are what give the card it's, it's tactile feeling. It's, it's, you know, the, 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 the grip that we feel on the paper. And so there could be cards that have, no grip and there could be cards that have a lot of grip and that becomes a preference right like what do you like like i prefer no grip you all grip like you know it depends on your tastes so all the all the glazing and the finishing happen at the end and then the cards get sliced up packaged up put into the box cellophaned up and then that's how they make playing cards you could probably go online i'm sure there's probably a youtube video that'll show maybe not united states playing card companies factory but you've got factories in china that are showing their process You've got, I mean, you can probably find it and it's really neat and super high tech, like super high tech. You know, you need a handful of people that know what they're doing, that have degrees in this kind of thing to run these presses. And there is nobody that's screaming, stop the presses anymore. That doesn't happen. <laughs> Not going to work. It's too expensive to stop those presses mid, mid, mid printing. Yeah. And, you know, they have Wait. to ink the presses as the, the sheets running through. And so, you know, you'll see cards like, if you if you watch it online, you'll see like they'll run these cards running through it at breakneck speed and they're inking the presses. It happens. But as the ink starts to wear away, they got to re-ink it. And so there's times where cards are red, 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 pink, 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 red, 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 red. And so it's like they're it's it's like a it's a, a very organic process to print these cards like you you need someone who knows what they're doing. Mobile mm. people and know what they're doing to be able to operate these presses and churn out really good playing cards. You know, I'm pretty sure if they gave me the keys to the factory, I probably wouldn't be able to do it. I'd, I'd crank out a couple and they'd be terrible. Um, but yeah, it's like th- this is some real in, like industry inside knowledge to be able to print these cards. And and it's, it's something that's been happening for, like I say, a, a millennium. 
I know when Anton gets a new packet of cards, he's um, always really feeding them and how they move together and the texture. Because we, we started designing some cards um, just to, because he wow. loves cards and why not? Sure. Uh, so Fine. he got a, a sample of different paper types um, from mm-hmm. one of the manufacturers so that we could actually kind of explore how they feel in the hand and the quality of the finish and yeah. Right. So there's a lot of that's that. right. And that's, that's what I was talking about. Like that, that journey, that self discovery, you know, you don't know what you like till you play with it. You don't know that you like those hatch patterns till you touch it and go, Oh, that feels good. You know, like I can explain to you like, Oh yeah, you need to try this stock and with this finish. I mean, doesn't matter until you touch it and you go, yeah, no, I like that. I like that. That's good. That, that works for me. And it's, it's very subjective and it's very special that way, you know? And so it's, it's, there aren't many things that you go on journeys like that for, but playing cards. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's cool. That's cool. You guys are designing your own cards because that's a lot of work. Most people don't realize how much work that takes, you know, to design a deck of cards from scratch is like, whoa, a lot of work. What do you think is going to happen in the future with playing cards? Because there's an amazing history there. I mean, where, where are we heading? Well, that's a that's a great question. And my crystal ball has been in the shop for a while, so I don't have a perfect answer for you. But I do think that if we take a step back and we look at what's happening in the world, we might be able to get a, an idea of what might happen with playing cards. And so what's happening in the world right now? Everything's becoming digital. We're moving into the metaverse. We're moving into this online kind of hybrid universe. And so I think that that's what's going to happen with playing cards is – the manufacturers and magicians and cardists, we're all going to have to find ways to make playing cards relevant in this new space. And uh, it's going to take a while and it's going to be really uncomfortable and things are going to be really cringy, but eventually it'll hit. And then once it hits, then okay, now we're into this new space. And so I think that the trajectory is the same, right? Playing cards get better. Magic gets better. Well, playing cards become digital and get better. Magic becomes digital and gets better. It's the same trajectory. And that brings up a lot of questions. Like I'm a sleight of hand artist. So how do Mm -hmm. I do sleight of hand in a digital world? Am I using controllers? Like, I don't know how this, and the answer is we don't have an answer yet. So new. And so what we need to be doing is jumping in headfirst and trying and seeing and failing miserably every time until we get it right. And that includes, like I said, the manufacturers, because they too, like they have, they have real skin in the game to make sure that playing cards make it to the next, Mm -hmm. you know, generation, the next century and the next you know, um, version of whatever the world's going to be. So I think that in our lifetimes, paper cards will not be going away, right? That, that That's not, it's like saying that books are going away in our lifetime. Nah, probably not, probably not. Um, but 100 years from now, if, you know, if I'm able to be alive still, like I'm pretty sure we're going to see things in the, the digital world and, and how that kind of evolves. And we're pretty close already, right? You've played solitaire on your phone, you know, or on your computer, those are digital playing cards. You know, you can mm-hmm. manipulate them and shuffle them with a couple of clicks of the button and, and you play with them and it's just different, right? It's not better. It's not worse. It's just different. And so I think we're headed that. I also think there might be uh, a resurgence of going the opposite direction. And so we might see manufacturers going, no, no, no. While we have the digital end, we're still printing the traditional end of things. And we're going to try to keep improving the traditional end of things based on how technologies are improving with printing and how they're making paper. And so I don't think that's going away anytime soon, certainly not in our lifetimes. Um, but that's, yeah, I think 
I mean, ultimately, I think as cards get better, magic will get better. And that's the future that we will be living. Do you think there then that um, magicians are going to be maybe the most important people for card manufacturers going forwards? Because a lot of the games historically were what pushed card development, but maybe those are going to go more digital. But because magic, a pack of cards that you can put it in your pocket, you can bring it out anywhere. And then the actual magic is so intimate and maybe you want that more in the real world in many cases you, you you like that it's a genuine kind of act happening in front of you a genuine deception not some trickery digitally so right. perhaps right. magic is going to be most important yeah i think magic has always been important for that reason you know like if you go back in time with magic you know we were the oracles we were the the shamans we were the the people who the rest of civilization would come to us and ask us, what do we think, what will the future look like? What does it hold for us? And we always had the answer. We were always, uh, you know, on the, the, the cusp of, of cutting edge and we still should be, you know, it, it's changed a bit. Magic went from this mystical shamanistic kind of thing to more of an entertainment thing during like the, um, the Italian Renaissance. And so we're still kind of in that entertainment end of things and not so much in the shamanistic end of like no one's calling me to ask me my thoughts for, you know nostradamus predictions here but <laughs> yeah. they're asking me to perform so we're still into that mode but i do think that magicians have always played a very important crucial role in society in that being that oracle being that 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 link between the mysterious and unknown and the rest of the world and and We've always played that. I mean, we've always been ahead of technology. We've always used technology to our advantage to help fool audiences. Mm -hmm. And nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. You know, like everyone's doing tricks with apps and phones and like we're all using technologies. And now we're, we've got like AI moving into the realm. And so, you know, it's 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 a really wonderful time to be a magician. It's a really wonderful time to love playing cards. Um, I don't have an exact answer of what the future looks like, because if I did, we'd be playing the lottery right now. Um, but I do, I, <laughs> yes. I do think that, like I say, as technologies improve, magic will also improve. And that's, that mm. has been a constant for a millennium. And so I don't see that changing anytime soon. Is there anything you'd like to add or any plugs or things like that? Mm, cheap plugs, cheapleeasher.com. Um, yes. <laughs> well, you know, my best advice to anyone that's listening, if you really like playing cards, is to go buy a bunch of different cards from around the world. And start playing. Buy cards from China. Buy cards from Brazil. Buy cards from Europe. Buy cards from England. Buy cards, you know, from America. And just start playing. See what you like. Make notes. You know, and no one, there is no shortcut. No one's going to tell you. No one has the answer. It's only you. And and what's, what I, again, what going back to the beginning, but what I like about magic is the time spent with myself solving problems. So you can imagine how much I love playing with cards from different parts of the world and understanding them and trying to figure out what I like, because that is time spent with myself. And, and so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a benefit. It's a benefit that when you start to learn those kinds of things and appreciate those kinds of things and understand those kinds of things about yourself, because it, it translates to many other things, you know, it translates to life in a way. And so I'm comfortable being able to soul search. You know, people have a hard time. Oh, I'm not sure. I don't want to spend. I'm scared to spend time with myself. Man, I love to spend time with myself. That's all I do you know, <laughs> because it's, it's, it's very rewarding for me. And so I, I would hope that others would find that kind of reward. I know that we're all different and unique. And so not everyone is going to enjoy the things that I enjoy or like the things that I like. And that's totally cool. But I do hope that they, you do find what you like and what you enjoy. And that's important because if you do that, the quicker you do that, 
the better off we can have conversations about that kind of stuff. You know, because if not, it's then it's very one sided and it's only me telling you what I like. And if you don't know what you like, then you're going to like what I like. And that's that's a shame, mm. you know, because you might like something that eventually one day I might like. And I wouldn't know about it until you showed me. And so I don't want to cheat anyone out of those opportunities. You know, go go do your homework on your own. And trust me, it's not hard homework. You're going to like it and uh, you'll <laughs> find what you like. You'll find what you like. And then everything gets much better from that point on. Thanks very much. That's that's brilliant. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah. Um, My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for yeah. asking, guys. I appreciate uh, anyone who wants to know more about playing cards or talk playing cards. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to say, Anton? Just thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah. My pleasure. My pleasure. My pleasure. And if you guys have any questions about history or magic or playing cards or whatever, I'm really easy to get a hold of, as you know. My, my email yes. is lee at leeasher.com. You can visit leeasher.com. There's your cheap plug. leeasher.com. <laughs> and uh, and I'm always I'm always available to talk playing cards. I'm always you know interested in discussing it. And, and every once in a while, someone will email me with something that I don't know. You know, and I love when that happens. I love when that happens because that forces me to go learn more yeah. and uh, and spend more time with myself. And so, yeah. Yeah, again, I, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share these kinds of thoughts with your your listeners. And um, yeah, maybe one day we'll meet in, in person and you'll, you'll show me some magic. Yeah, that'd be really cool. <laughs> Definitely. Brilliant. So thank you so much for your time today, Lee. And uh, yeah, it's been fantastic chatting to you. And yeah, you, your clear love and passion for playing cards and magic. I mean, it's really come through. So thank you. My pleasure. It's, that's all I know. So uh, <laughs> they say, if you're going to do something, do it the best. And so yes. I'm yeah. kind of under yeah. that opinion. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it the best I can. And, that's great. And I'm happy. I'm happy that other people care too. You know, because ultimately, I do this for me. I do this for my enjoyment and my love. And if anyone else doesn't care, that's cool. But if other people do care, well, that's a bonus. <laughs> yes. And so I I appreciate that. And I, and I and I appreciate being able to share that kind of information with people who care. Thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah, you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right. I'll, I'm sure I'll be, I'll see you guys. Our paths will cross one of these days. All right, guys. Thank you so much for your Thank time. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Danton, are you feeling inspired after that? Yeah. We started designing some playing cards ourselves, and that's inspired me to keep keep going with those a little bit yeah and you've also been doing lots of magic and things haven't you mm -hmm. and knowing that he created his own trick when he was 15 that means i can do it too <laughs> <laughs> yeah that is something to reach to definitely um but during the interview um lee was actually very modest um about self-promotion or as he said the cheap sell uh, but we really want you to check out leeasher.com. That's L-E-E-A-S-H-E-R.com where you can find out more about him. Um, you can get his book on card history and magic tricks and all sorts of things there. And if you love playing cards, you definitely need to go to 52plusjoker at 52plusjoker.org. That's right, yeah. So go check that out. Um, and lots of cool stuff there for everybody who likes playing cards, whether it's modern or antique or everything in between. Um, yeah, so I really hope you enjoyed the interview. Um, we definitely did. Yeah. Yeah, really cool. So thank you very much, Lee, as well, for taking the time with us. Um, absolutely fantastic. Um, but speaking of promotions, um, you should probably check out our website as well at the... Uh, Curiousofachild.com. That's right, it's been a long time. And on social media, just search for... 
The curiosity of? Because we've updated our thingy? Yeah, or probably still the curiosity of a child as well uh, to find us there, even though we are now just the curiosity of, um, or search for Curie Child Pod. And um, yeah, follow us there. Join our Patreon as well, where you get some bonus content, mm-hmm. which is really cool. And We sent a t-shirt to Liasha as a thank you, so buy some of those so you can be just like him. Oh yeah, in the store, yeah. You can get the Lee Asher look. At shop.thecursivechild.com That's correct. It's been so long you can't remember our website, but no worries. No. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much. Um, we should be back soon, maybe with an additional episode on a bit more uh, card magic history. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye. Actually, before Ooh. you go... Ooh, yeah, sorry. Maybe I'll do a um, magic video potentially on the Patreon. If I don't, then we'll cut this bit out. Or something. I don't know. This isn't being cut. This is now pressure for him to do an amazing magic video for all of our lovely patrons. Oh, well, you'll only find out if I've actually done the video, which I probably would have on our Patreon. And if it's not there, he's magically made it disappear. Yeah. Incredible trick. Or maybe you're just not on a high enough tier, so you'll have to upgrade. (laughs) Okay, that's enough blatant um, (laughs) capitalism there. So goodbye, and uh, I love you.